But mm-hmm. what people don't know is the scariest part in Kiev, and this is now, we're talking Washington, D.C., right? We're talking the capital of the country. We're talking right. like the Fort Knox, in, 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 if you will, where the president, who the entire army of Putin, Putin's goal was to come in straight into Kiev, decapitate the, the government and pretty literally, you know, and, uh, and, and, and place its own government. This thing was meant to be done in three days, max, right? Because who's going to stop this massive army from coming in? Uh, and so what happened is that when there was a pushback, he got pissed. And so all this atrocity started. But what people are now realizing is that the first second when this thing started, all around Kiev, there was so many, I don't even know how to say that word in, in, in English, there were so many Russian spy kind of like cells, right. uh, especially at night. There was constant, there was about 30, I think, assassination attempts on, on Zelensky within the first week. Hey, what's up, guys? Welcome to another episode of the Allison Interviews podcast. I have a very special interview on this episode with Maxim Shmerkovsky. So Dancing with the Stars fans know him as the unbelievably talented, super handsome, really charming, awesome pro dancer on Dancing with the Stars for many, many years now. But his professional dance career actually dates back way before that television show ever existed. And it actually has some really interesting family roots that began with his mother. And it's really kind of a family business. It's it's so fascinating. I found Maxim's life story is so fascinating because he grew up in uh, Ukraine as a little boy, he and his brother Val, and um, that was during the time when Ukraine was actually part of the Soviet Union or USSR, so it was under communist rule, and that was the way he and his family lived, and what's really interesting about that and what he explained to me is that when you're living like that and you don't know any different, I mean, as a kid, you're just kind kind of enjoying yourself. You're pretty carefree. And it wasn't until his family emigrated to the United States, to New York City, and they settled in Brooklyn, where he started to see really interesting differences about freedom of religion and more abundance just in terms of the resources that we had here. I mean, even, you know, having an an overabundance of food that we have here and just your ability to be able to pursue anything that you want to pursue in this country. Whereas back there, he tells this very interesting story about his father actually being restricted in what he could study and where he could study because he was Jewish in communist Ukraine at the time. So his life story is really a fascinating one, and it goes so far beyond television stardom. But I will say this, I really do believe that everything happens for a reason. And as we all know, Max was in the Ukraine working on a television show when war broke out, when Vladimir Putin invaded Ukraine, uh, I believe it was back in February. And he was stuck in the con- in his home country at the time. And it was pretty dangerous because the Russian government 
government was purposefully targeting civilians. And once he got out and he came back home to safety, he didn't just say, wow, you know what? I'm safe. I'm good. He actually flew back east to Warsaw, Poland to help Ukrainian refugees. And then he went a step further and he started his 501c3 nonprofit organization, Baranova 27, which I thought was, this is so sweet. Baranova 27 was actually his childhood street address when he lived in Ukraine as a little boy. That really warmed my heart. And yeah, the nonprofit is Baranova 27. You can go to baranova27.org to get information and see how you can help Max's efforts in bringing all kinds of resources to the Ukrainian people. I know right now they're actually building what he calls Baranova villages, which is temporary housing for people who are displaced and um, living in refugee camps. So head over to baranova27.org, find out how you can help. It's really, really important. You can follow Max on Instagram at MaximC, and you can follow me on Instagram at the Allison Kugel. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this very meaningful interview with Maxim Shmurkovsky. I'm Allison. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you, Allison. Where are you right now? Are you at home in Los Angeles? I'm at home, yes. Okay. So I actually want to start with the beginning of your life because I think that your experiences would be of uh, some curiosity to a lot of people, because I feel that those of us who were born in the United States and have only ever known the Western type of life may have a lot of misunderstanding about the East. Okay. So you grew, you grew up in Odessa, Ukraine up to the age of 14. Correct. And the first, I'm assuming like the early part of your childhood, it was part of the Soviet Union. So you were under Soviet rule, which was a communist uh, country. What was that experience like growing up like that? Interesting. I'm 20 plus, almost 30 years in this country. No one's ever asked me that. Um, But it is true. Yeah. And, And I think people think of Soviet Union like... Genghis Khan Empire, you <laughs> know, so long ago. Uh, yeah. but or, reality- or, or Rocky IV, right? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> yeah. It was so long ago, but apparently um, uh, it's still going on. And, and the, 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 the war that Ukraine's involved in today is that, is the war of, you know, Putin trying to put the USSR back together. So as someone who, you know, firsthand, my firsthand experience in the USSR is, uh, what's fresh in my mind, uh, my, my school, for example, I was always part of something. There was, a, you know, pioneers, there was like a high school level, you had to be, you're part of a communist, you, you, you're being prepped for a communist party, right? So in what in, US, in, in USA is like the middle school already starting there, you know, you, there's a lot of pro-Soviet Union kind of education and, uh, you know, historically, the way history is being taught in this former Soviet Union is also skewed kind of like that way. You know, uh, the Soviet Union won World War II basically single-handedly, uh, which we all know is not the truth. You know, it was USSR against everybody was, again, it's not the truth, you know. So there were some skewed moments historically that were presented. But, you know, to be the biggest thing that was my 
immigration shock was, for example, and this is a true story, I didn't know what the word religion meant. I actually never heard the word religion. So you know, ex really, explain, I, explain yeah, that. Yeah, Why is I that? Never, I never really understood, but until I immigrated to New York, the Judaism, you know, the Jewish thing, the, 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 also there's a difference between this and that. So like in, in your saw, what I'm realizing is, is it, it's all been like, here's what's allowed and everything else is not. And all those like, you know, the, the Jewish diaspora that we're a part of moving to U.S., I, I didn't really know anything about growing up in, in, in USSR. And so it was one of the things that I realized were kind of kept under some kind of a lid. In terms of, um, you know, the restrictions, I, I, I haven't felt, because I was a teenager, I guess I haven't felt specifically these things. I see now, and as soon as I immigrated again to U.S., I saw the abundance of everything versus the, you know, the deficit of pretty much all of the same things over in, 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 in USSR and where I came from. You know, I saw that here, you know, the opportunities, again, this is a beat up phrase, the opportunities to make it, the opportunities, but it's the reality. We immigrated, my family got up and left because of the opportunities for us. And, and finally, the, the army, the army reserves and the weights, you know, you, you, you're being put on the list. The army back there was mandatory. And so my parents looked at me turning 14 at some point and kind of like, okay, he's next. And as a matter of fact, at 14, I was already put on, on the list, right? So it wasn't even like a... To be drafted at what age? 18 at years old. Okay. But there was a there was a talk of us immigrating, and so as we were finalizing our documents, that what happened is that you know all of a sudden I was in school and, and somebody came in and they put us on the list, and my mom started freaking out like they're not going to let us out of the country now. So you know there were all these things, and then you know when I immigrated and we kind of like I started to mature and you know grow up, I, I realized and 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 talked to my fellow immigrants. You know, I realized that it wasn't all gravy. And, you know, for example, my dad wasn't able to go to university he wanted to go to. He actually wasn't allowed into university because he was Jewish. And so he had to go to marine merchants in order to also not, you know, fall into the army. So all of those things were, were not the place you wanted to raise your kids. Let's just put it that way. But you as a kid, you didn't realize the freedoms you were lacking and how you were being indoctrinated into a certain way of thinking until you saw the contrast when you came to Absolutely. the United States, when you came to New York. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. I, I, you know, I have to say that, you know, it's also all about the family unit, right? We talk about the kind of parents that you can be lucky to have. I'm lucky you know, to have the parents that I do. And, you know, the way they brought us up, the way they, they taught us to look at things. And most importantly, the way the house was maintained is that no matter what, I come home and it's our environment. This is where I'm loved. This is where we are. You know, my brother and I were always supported. And so we never felt the restrictions that some may have felt. I felt loved. And I loved my parents and I, I, and I respected them. And when we decided what they decided that we're going to move to a different country, it was my home is my parents. It's not it's not. Right. Yeah, I, I feel that I know exactly what you mean. So before you moved to New York, there was a brief time when when the USSR had had dismantled and then Ukraine was trying to find its footing as a free and democratic nation. 
right? The last few years that you were living there. So what was that transition like being there during that time? Yeah, I think that's the time when, when, um, you know, when USSR fell apart, it was in the 1889 or something. And uh, 91, Ukraine had famously given up its um, nuclear, uh, I guess, reserve or whatever it's called, arsenal. Mm-hmm. And uh, in basically 91 was, the, was when Ukraine decided we want to play with those guys. We don't want to play with these guys anymore. You know, we want to go to Europe, we want to be European nation, we want to be pro- progressive. Uh, we don't, you know, and so I think that that's the day when, you know, Russia and uh, that mentality started to kind of brew. And, and what we're seeing today is the result of what started back then. You right. know, I think that for Putin, I think Putin came to power around 91 as well. I'm not sure. Immediately, the first order of business is, is, is eventually getting Ukraine to be to be back and to be under this sort of regime. Um, so that's what we're seeing right now. The result of 91. We'll okay. So you get to Brooklyn, you're 14. So it's you, your brother and your parents. Correct. And you don't speak the language. How did you, <laughs> how did you, how did you cope with the culture shock? And was it dance that kind of gave you something to hold on to while you were trying to integrate into American society? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's all cute and romantic, but the reality is I spoke the cha-cha. I didn't speak the English, you know? So, right. <laughs> you know, for me, by the way, it wasn't even that amazing in cha-cha. I was just good enough for Ukraine, but I was, you know, at the time, in mid '90s, when we came here, '94, United States um, danced, but you know it was just coming out of social dance kind of level, right? So in terms of competitive ballroom dancing, this country wasn't really um, uh, it, forefront. It's not even close. So what we ended up being, and by we I mean the wave of immigrants in, in mid '90s, me, my brother, and a few other couples that landed in Brooklyn, we started what is now ballroom dance industry in this country and we were the first kids we were the first youth then we were the first couples to represent the united states on the world level you know you're talking about 96 german open when you know my brother is second and i'm a finalist in my category and (laughs) they're reading the names valentin chmerkovsky you know representing (laughs) the united states or my Markovsky with our partners, like, you, you know, Yelena and Ina and the, this one. And so, so, you know, it was very interesting. And we're, we were so proud. I remember that feeling. We were so proud because I didn't feel, I didn't feel the pride for the, you know, where I was coming from, you know, the, the, the former Soviet Union, the, even the, the, the Ukraine, you know, today Ukraine is a romantic, you know, beautiful place that that's worth supporting and and protecting right back then i was 14 and i was you know leaving the place i felt angry to be honest with you i felt like that country let me go i felt like that region let me go you know that they weren't holding on to me you know so what what do you mean by that i mean that when i landed in brooklyn i was brooklynite you know i was a new yorker you know it was it was my probably first real love you know, the city and the place and United States and having that flag. And then, you know, this was the motivation for, for my brother and I to compete and represent and do better. You know, it was as much as it was as much I want to win as I want to keep to carry my American flag in the business of dance 
worldwide where that flag is not prevalent at all. You know, my brother, again, is the first United States world champion in Latin back then. And, you know, and I'm a proud coach of him in that particular moment in time. And so for us to raise the American flag that, by the way, quick tidbit, Val, you know, my brother won won junior worlds in Italy, you know, and uh, the funny thing is that they didn't actually have an American flag. To, to host for the first place because it was right. not something that was to be expected. So it's interesting, but that's our history. You know, we landed here. We've, uh, you know, moved on from where we come from. We weren't focused on, you know, the, immigr- the immigrant part of it. The questions you're not asking because we may not be privy, but there were food stamps. There was welfare pro- government assist program. There were, you know, we were given plastic chairs. I remember there was a fa- we, we were a family of four. We got, you know, furniture that was sort of like donated to us by, you know, Jewish organization or the welfare program. And I remember we got a chair, a table and three chairs. And I was like, that's, that's odd. There's four of us, but you know, who cares? <laughs> so, you know, so, so we, um, you know, we've gone through a lot. My parents had both two jobs, not, the jobs that you wouldn't be proud of, but, you know, talking right. about dishwasher and the delivery boy in pizzeria while learning English, while trying to get, you know, some kind of education going. So all those struggles are crazy, but we felt good about it. You know, we felt romantic about it. You know, it was, you know, I was again, like I was a teenager going, you know, I was 14 going on 25 overnight. And um, it was all about supporting the family and family's mm-hmm. decision here. Here's where we are. We've got to build here. And we got to do whatever it takes. Um, well, you felt you felt like you had to grow up fast. I didn't have a choice. I landed right. in New York. I landed in New York May 29th, 1994. I was a baby. I was a baby that was highly educated. I finished nine grades in Soviet, you know, school system. So you 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 can imagine. I was a chemistry and biology major since I was in seventh grade. So when I landed here, high school did not entice me. I went to public public high school in Brooklyn. And the first day of my 10th grade, what I saw, what, what we had to do for math, I realized that I'm four grades behind in, in terms of like, I've done that in, in, in fifth grade. And so for me, unfortunately, education did not, you know, I felt like I was, I was light years ahead of everybody here in high school, regardless of not having English. So well, when, yes. you, when, you were, when you were over there in Ukraine, were you thinking maybe I'll be a doctor, a scientist? Like, was your head completely somewhere else when you were over there? I think that 14, 15 is when you start having those thoughts. So I was, I was right. I, w- I would have, if we, if we were to stay a couple more years and, you know, not until, you know, I would probably go through these thoughts, but at 14, I, I wasn't ready to think that way yet. And so when I landed here in U.S., uh, within, first of all, I got beat up second day. So, you know, you're talking about welcome. I was going to ask that. I'm thinking, you know, Amazing. Russian name, doesn't speak the language. It wasn't you even know. about that. Half of those, half of the kids that, that beat me up were like fellow immigrants. So it was like a, a black kid, a couple of Asian guys. There was Italian twins that I met a long time after that. And, uh, and, and a Russian kid, somebody else. So like it was a United Nations welcome. You know, it wasn't, sure. you know, I wasn't even upset. It was like, I was upset, but it was like, you know, it is what it is. So, you know, that was a very, there were a few moments that I feel like, you know, toughened me up. And I guess, I guess it's like, you know what, if, if everything was roses and butterflies, 
you know, it would have been different. But my path, the way it is, and I guess the, the overcoming of some things, you know, <clears throat> it's not me patting myself on the back. It's me saying that the circumstance behind my life was such that shaped me to do this, you Absolutely. know? circumstance were easier, I would have, maybe I would have been something different. So now you guys, you and Val become top international competitors. Correct. And how, did, how does Dancing with the Stars find you? I was um, for, ranked first in the US and fourth in the world at that time. Just sheer rankings, you know, in terms of, you know, placement, I was probably top six in the world at the moment and you know going into the semi-final final in my professional latin career my brother was six years younger was six years younger so he was still in in youth and you know he wasn't he didn't have aspirations of of dancing with the stars and neither did i you know at the time that dancing with the stars started first season i remember it was a pilot season during the summertime and uh and the phone rang hey dancing with the stars i literally hung up right away and you know there were another 10 calls that just kept hanging up it was not my plan. It wasn't what I wanted to do. It was. It had nothing to do with my future. You know, my future was had to do with winning the world title, and you know. So you didn't. You process. didn't see. You didn't see national network television as a path to uh, making your dreams come true or success or anything like that. You just kept hanging up on them. I don't mean at all because in this country okay. it wasn't my passion. My passion was. You know, again, world championships, you know, in Germany or Europe, we've been signing autographs since I'm 17 years old. So it wasn't like I, I, you know, I didn't need fame. I wasn't trying to go after financial, you know, reciprocation of that sort. I was I was just a competitor. And, and, and you know how, like, if you are to like those thoroughbred racehorses, you know, you have the blinds on and you just see the yes. front. That, that was me. And so there was a lot of us. There was most of us. Second season came around. And I, un- unfortunately, at that time, I split up with my partner and I was really in search for, for a partner that, you know, would inspire me to, to reset. I was a bit depressed. It was at that time, I was 25 years old and I danced since I was four. You know, I had my studio since I was 17. I had kids. And so I raised a lot of couples and I dedicated all of my life to ballroom dancing in that genre, in that direction. All I, I saw every you know, major city on every continent and in every major country. And I did not see anything of the city. I only saw ballroom, you know, floor and kind of format. So, you know, I I realized that I haven't lived and I've never been to LA. And so Mm -hmm. when that call came in again, I kind of said, well, why not? And I I swear to God, this was why not join Dancing with Stars. It wasn't like, yes, this is all I want to do. It was why not? (laughs) Okay. Screw it. Let's go through, give it a try. My plan was to come in, do one season, come back, get a partner and continue my quest. And, uh, you know, here we are. (laughs) And and my, my brother actually joined the show six years later so we kind of did everything with five six years and you know first okay. i do then i lay the path and the foundation and then he follows my my footsteps and how do you feel about fame because you said it's not something i was looking for i wasn't really interested so how do you feel how do you feel about it i don't care about okay. fame at all i have i don't i i promise i don't care about fame i care about you know i care about my family's financial stability Right. Of so course. if I am the guy 
you know, on television, then it then that's my job, right? So the job is popularity and reciprocation, you know. And if and and but a lot of people, what I realized again, two thousand six or two thousand five, when I got to LA, and you know, I spent the next ten years, thirty five, no less, till thirty two, about thirty three, mm-hmm. I spent that time catching up on on going out on having a social life on being a teenager back in the day when I wasn't because I had a job at you know at night and my school time was not a teenage school time I didn't have any any social life so I really caught up to with all of that I promise plus LA you know with 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 a little bit of money in my pocket for the first Mm -hmm. time in life being able to help my family you know I never moved to LA I I I Kept you living in before. Yeah, I would come for the show, do my mm-hmm. job, and then go back to being what I wanted to be. So was it like... Probably it like- in hindsight, yeah, probably in hindsight was the right decision. I, I should have okay. come, stayed focused, and really honed in on, on Dancing with the Stars. But here's my right. history, you know? And so looking back, I think I did it. I did everything the, the maximum way, you know? The, 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 yeah. the, it's it's I, I can't do it. I can't be somebody else. And so this is how I did it. Um, but I'm, I'm grateful for the opportunity. The one thing that I noticed seeing people in LA and, and realizing what this industry is about <clears throat> is that I noticed that there were a lot of people here that just wanted to be here for the sake of being here, you know, being famous for the sake of being famous. They had no career path. They had no, you know, future plans. They weren't trying to, you know, reinvent the, something or, 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 or make a, make their mark on the world. They were trying to just be famous. It's that Kardashian kind of, you know, syndrome. It's it's that self-serving. It's not how can I serve? It's how can the world serve me? I'm not making everybody. No, no, I get it. A lot of people do things for their, for their own, for their own. uh, Yeah. A lot of people, focus on them and that's okay i I don't i don't need everybody to serve the world look at me now you know i'm I'm running a a non-profit and 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 i'm having the most difficult time you know getting people to to donate because i realize people are focused on on first within which is okay i'm fine with that what i'm not was wasn't fine with is that in 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 my profession that was becoming that the tv personality you know that i was getting the name I was getting sort of put under the same umbrella of everyone. Everybody's in LA is the same type. That's not true. Did it, did it make you feel embarrassed to be called a celebrity? Because I, I find that word so oh, cringy. Yeah. I find it cringy, right? It's like, ooh, yeah, no. I, I, I know I know what you mean. So you wanted to like put the focus yeah, elsewhere. Yeah, I'm a, yeah. yeah. I'm, a, I'm a professional dancer. You know, yeah. it's like, you know, it took me a second to uh, to carry that with pride. Um, I've, I've, I guess I guess I, you know, I've made a career out of it. And then I made another career out of that career. So that I'm very proud of being able to convert like that. Uh, Dancing with the Stars certainly is the only reason why that was possible. Having well, said it's that. Also, like, it's how you met your wife, right? <laughs> I mean, not well. Yeah, and or did yes, you guys meet? Yes. Or did you guys meet working in New York? We met on Broadway, but okay. the reality is that I would not have probably been on that Broadway production had I not been, you know, a, a certain level dancer on television. And so when Peter's Broadway show, uh, where she was one of the starring characters in, it's called Burn the Floor. And when it came to US and 
It was already a popular production all over the world, Asia specifically, you know, the countries that were ballroom friendly because it was a ballroom based first ever stage production that was worldwide phenom. And now uh, when it came to US, they asked <clears throat> me to uh, be one of the stars to just basically sell tickets in this country. I'm a big time dancer in this country on TV. So uh, when Peter and I met, she wasn't really fond of me because it was like, who is this celebrity? you know, coming in <laughs> and now he's taking up all center stage space and reality is I'm just there to sell tickets. But again, you know, she saw me for who I truly am in, on the inside and fell in love. I believe in first sight. Head over, she, head over she's, heels. <laughs> she's never going to admit it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So I want to talk about your you, you traveled back to your home country of Ukraine to work on a television show, right? Right. Okay, so you're there working when uh, Ukraine gets invaded by Putin. Correct. And all of a sudden, you are in a war-torn country. And your wife had suffered a miscarriage back home at the same time. So it was like a shitstorm. Like, I mean, first of all, how do you... Okay, so we all have times in life where life hits us hard, right? It's like, why is everything happening at once? Like, why am I in this valley and how do I get out? What's your advice or what, what is your MO for trying to handle overwhelming emotions, fear, grief, you know, on and on? How did you handle that time? Shit. Bad. <laughs> yeah. I mean, um, <laughs> you know, there are a lot of, I have to say there's a lot, there are a lot of, like, yeah, soul searching is just these beat up phrases. I keep listening to other people's interviews and I'm like, you're saying things that are just so cliche, right? And here I am and you're asking me this question and I'm, and I'm referring to cliche sentences. Like, you know, you, you search on the, from the inside, all this nonsense. Look, the reality is I'm in Kiev. I woke up 5 a.m. My phone rings off the hook. And I keep it, I, I never sleep next to my phone. I put my phone in the other room. Or if I'm in a hotel room, it's like on the other corner, right? Because I don't want this right here. And I also want to be, when I put an alarm, I want to get up and go turn it off. And the phone is off the hook. And I kind of keep half my eye open. I see this like pitch black. It's still early in the morning. And it might be somebody calling from US who forgot that I'm, you know, the time zones are different, whatever. And, um, and it just keeps ringing and keeps ringing and keeps ringing. And so I got up and it's my friend from Kiev who's like, hey, the war has begun, just be calm, pack your bags. I'm like, what, what do you mean? Let's go back to the first thing you said. Like, so it was a very eerie feeling. I don't think I handled it the best. I wasn't like calm, cool, and collected, making amazing decisions. I was freaking out, but trying not to show it. I was trying to like, you know, call my wife and be like, hey, we're good. It's all good. Because I felt like I let everybody down. My entire family was telling me not to go. I was at home for, for Valentine's Day with Peter, and on February 20th, I was go flying back to Ukraine to continue the filming, and Peter was crying. We almost missed my flight. Uh, it, it was just like things that were sort of trying to prevent me from going, and I might have been the only one from U.S. flying that way. So, mm -hmm. you know, I felt like and four, year, four days later, this is happening. What the whole world was telling me and I was telling everyone, which is, it's, it's fine. When this goes down, I'll be okay. Production swore to me that it's all taken care of. I'll be the first on the plane and out, right? What's going to happen? They're going to come in with some tanks. It's going to take a little bit of time before, you know, this comes into some sort of Kiev 
none of that happened. None of it. The first thing that happened was aerial attack. All airports were shut down. And over, over the next couple of hours, it was clear that I'm not going anywhere. And I, and I have no way of leaving. And if you want to leave, here's the border with Poland and go schlep all the way. Right. And so it turned into. But, but, here's, but here's what's scary and what people need to understand. So in a situation like this, Putin was, I think at some point he was purposefully targeting civilian areas. It wasn't like, oh, the war is being fought over here, but the civilians are safe. Right. So you know that civilians are being targeted and you're there. Right. So right. what? So what yeah, is, no, this was what not. Is, this, this is not. <clears throat> and it did not start as the war, which is going to just kind of like, you know, be fought at the forefront. This this is a war. This is straight up war. This is some like, if you can imagine your country getting attacked, I can't even imagine, I can't even imagine if people really have that imagination at this point in time, because they feel like it's some kind of swarm coming in, war everywhere. No, it's, it's kind of individual sort of things that happen but when it when it started going in like that, it just became so scary over in instant instantly. But mm-hmm. what people don't know is the scariest part in Kiev, and this is now we're talking Washington D.C. Right? We're talking the capital of the country. We're talking right. like the Fort Knox, and in, 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 if you will, where the president, who the entire army. Of Putin, Putin's goal was to come in straight into Kiev, decapitate the, the government, and pretty literally, you know, and uh, and 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 place its own government. This thing was meant to be done in three days, max, right? Because who's going to stop this massive army from coming in? Uh, and so what happened is that when there was a pushback, he got pissed, and so all this atrocity started. But what people are now realizing is that the first second. When this thing started all around Kiev, there was so many, I don't even know how to say that word in, 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 in English. There was so many Russian spy kind of like cells, right. uh, especially at night. There was constant, there was about 30, I think, assassination attempts on, on Zelensky within the first week. It was just special kind of like forces all over the city, you know, they were trying to get to him, insurgents, whatever you call them. I I don't know how to call it. But that was the scariest part is that we weren't allowed to leave the city because you don't, both people look the same. Ukrainian and Russian look the same. So you never know who is who, who's working for what. And and, and it was just, it's crazy. And it was so eerie. You know, right now, everything is sort of pushed to the front lines. And, you know, that's where it's all happening minus occasional bombing that is coveredly, cowardly done from either yeah. Belarusian border or from Black Sea, just coward warfare, you know? And so at this point, it's kind of what it is. But when it started, it was horrible. It was horrific. And, you know, in hindsight, I was not shot at. I was not, you know, I was not in a, in a sort of like live combat kind of situation. Uh, so technically, what was my problem? Well, everybody in Ukraine yeah. and Kiev had the same issue. Everybody was like, this is the end of my life as I know it right now. And we have no idea what's going to happen next. And now six months later, it's, it's, it's still there. And how did you make your way to the Polish border? 
did you, I mean, yeah. How did you make your way across the border? There's a, there's a trade secret as, as to what I was doing and, and, and for eight days and I'm unable to say that, you know, how I ended up team of people that I ended up with, but I was fine. I was protected. I was, I was safe, but eight days later, no one turned out to be safe. And um, the area where I stayed in, which was kind of like the Switzerland where all the international news outlets were, and it was mm-hmm. sort of like off. I don't even know how to say it. Like during the wartime, I guess these places are off limits. Like this isn't, you know. These makeshift embassies kind of, like sort makeshift. Of, but yeah. Sort of, like, yeah. And so at some point that morning, I was, first of all, I already made friends with, you know, ex-military from different countries who were supporting their news teams and we became kind of like chat buddies. And, you know, that morning I got from two different sources, hey, you got to go. Like, you need to get out right now. So, you know, my news team is leaving and my news in the way, like, we're all relocating to leave. So you got to go. So I was already freaking out. And then the, the crew that I was with, they were like, hey, don't freak out, but I think we need to get you moving. So we're going to get you to the tr- train station and, and we're going to try to put you on a train, try to put you on a train. And I'm like, well, what's the try dependent on and they're like well you have a you know you're an american citizen so you will be basically just pushed out of the country and so that's what ended up happening i was shoved on a train that was going to warsaw and it, there was no schedule of trains you just show up to train station there was you know hundred thousand people with their kids and everybody and it's mostly women and children and you know there would be an announcement on this platform train in 20 minutes and it's going to leave or it's going to somewhere else and that was an announcement like there's a train going to to warsaw i was like i'm in and so the people that were with me just shoved me on the train and then the doors opened and all of the people that bombed that just bomb rushed it and so just to give you a you know kind of like a you know our train our cart is mm-hmm. made for 30 people there was 10 10 sort of like cabins mm-hmm. or three four people in each cabin we had 137 people on that train so the wow. 30 so you guys the were 30, packed in there it yeah. was so packed to where i first of all when it was starting to get packed i realized that i'm i'm actually just taking up way too much space i have a backpack and you know and i'm a big man and i'm fine so I moved myself in between the trains and I put myself in like a little place that's between okay. trains. And then all these people felt bad for me. So because I was just freezing in there. So uh-huh. I come in, warm up, somebody make me a sandwich. And then, you know, everybody went to sleep and there, was, and there became literally no space to stand because everybody's just laying down everywhere. <clears throat> so kind of spend my spend the night you know in between the the middle of the train and and the train itself and um i think i haven't slept like 36 hours maybe a little more uh which i was fine with because i had that experience in the past so i knew the body is, is going to be okay and i just needed to make sure that you know i keep myself calm and chill but were, it's were, were, were people fearful on the train oh about whether they would survive or yeah it wasn't, it wasn't only that. I heard a mother, uh, you know, we're on the train and I'm trying to help some people bring in their stuff in. And I realized that there's no room for stuff. And I'm thinking like, how does someone who has two kids, luggage and some stuff that they threw in, how do they do it? 
And then as I'm thinking that, I hear this, this lady that's passing by and screaming some other, some, someone's name. And she has a, she has like a three-year-old or four-year-old that she's kind of dragging behind her. And it's like, you know, Maria, Maria. So we realize that she lost the other child. So that in, the, in, the, in this nonsense. So that was crazy. Then we saw, you know, another mother who was right next to me, actually, who got on the train with her two, two kids. But in, the, in this kind of process of getting on a train, she had to dump all the stuff that she was with. So now she's here. She's got a wallet and two kids and nothing. So we had to collect, you know, the milk and some formula for the baby. I mean, I have a five-year-old and yeah. we're freaking out when, you know, his day is not according to the plan, right? Yeah. This, this is just, this, I know. Is, this is so horrible. It's crazy. I know. And it's reminding me of, because I'm Jewish as well. And I actually just read a book about uh, a woman who was in Auschwitz when she was uh, four and five and six years old. And right. the starvation and, and being on the train and, and everything else that she went through. And I'm thinking, yeah, I have a 13-year-old. And, you know, he, every two minutes, I'm hungry, I'm hungry, I'm hungry. Make me something, make me something. And I'm thinking, can you imagine being a parent and your child is hungry and you have nothing to give them? And there's well, nothing that, to do. So now imagine, again, a thousand people in Mariupol in the, in the building that got bombed that said the word children on it, right? There was a thousand people in there in bomb shelter all women and kids imagine the kids in azov uh, the azov uh, the azov the, the the steel factory thousands of people that were inside those bomb shelters and all over ukraine right those bomb shelters where people were you know and especially now in occupied territories i hope i hope that everyone with kids of any kind of age had left i really do you know, because it's so bad. And, you know, I'm not worried about, you know, I'm not talking about adults. I'm not talking about, you know, people like that. I'm talking about children specifically and, and how mm -hmm. horrific. So I want to talk to you about your nonprofit. Okay. Yeah. So it's called Baranova 27. And that is based on this, your street address from when you lived in Ukraine. Yeah. Baranova 27 is where I was born. My dad was okay. born. My brother was born. So wow. it's the how is the home we immigrated from. Okay. So tell me about the nonprofit and how, how you guys are getting resources to refugees and so, how people help. Yeah. I think, you know, I, as any, as any organization of that sort starts, it starts with the, the nucleus. I was the nucleus. I was the one, you know, I got stuck, turned into national news, turned into, turned into the constant reminder. I was like the, the sort of poster child for what this is, what's happening. And here's one of us, right? That's there. And this is the mm -hmm. person we trust because he's constantly on television. Anyway, we know him from this show here. He's not political, blah, 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 all those things. So normally I would have gotten home, hug it out, talk about this. How was it? This was terrible. Let's all help people from Ukraine. Keep it moving, right? <clears throat> With us, it's not, you know, it's not us. You know, my dad felt, my mom, my, my, my parents, my family, my brother, everybody immediately felt for me, all this, you know, fear and, and so on and anxiety. But we all collectively felt for the Ukrainian person, for the people that I, you know, we know. Plus the fact that I was working there for the last year, basically. I was judging Dancing with the Stars on one network. And at the time of the war beginning, I was... Um, filming World of Dance 
as a judge on, the, on another network. So I was kind of integrated into that lifestyle and into those people. You know, I had friends now from directly from Ukraine, not Ukrainians in America. So <clears throat> there was a lot of association. And uh, Baranova 27 started immediately. It took us, you know, my dad and, 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 and everyone involved basically four or five days to kind of catch our bearings. By the okay. time I started back in U.S., we were already sending out thousands and hundreds of thousands of pounds of humanitarian aid to Ukraine. And um, initially, it all started with GoFundMe. We raised, I want to say, $400,000 on GoFundMe. So to up to, to date, the way we've sent stuff over is through, you know, things that needed to be sent immediately, we sent by air. Things that we could send over time, we sent by, by ships and containers. Uh, currently, we still have two big containers on, on the way, but we've now shifted a little bit to trying to provide housing for displaced Ukrainians. And, and I don't mean refugees because we want to try to help people stay in Ukraine. A lot of people now coming back just to help with the war efforts and everything else. And so okay. that's our goal now is, is mobile homes. We call it Baranova Villages. Uh, mobile homes that we buy in Turkey or local manufacturers in Ukraine and that we put up and turn into like little settlements. Okay, so people can go to baranova27.org and they can donate? Yes, ma'am. Yeah, we are fully, well, right now we are obviously government-recognized 501c3 nonprofit. We're mm -hmm. actually a public charity, not a private charity. So we have all the credentials, if you will. <clears throat> we attracting corporate sponsorship, obviously. You know, a lot of people that, that donate to us don't want to be named. So it's not, I'm not in a PR game at all. Uh, yeah. I'm in a get as much done as, as quickly as I can kind of game. And so right now, all my efforts are for to fundraise and to continue uh, doing what we're doing. Have you reached out to President Zelensky at all or has he reached out to you? I have connects to to president i do you know because he comes from entertainment world and mm -hmm. not only that but at some three i think three or five years ago he actually won dancing with the stars ukraine as a oh, really? yeah and so <laughs> okay so through, through the networks through the um association i have some friends who are his very close friends mm -hmm. um i've just not i i don't i don't need that you know i i don't need you know, him and his support. I, and I think he doesn't need mine at the moment. He needs okay. all of us to do what we do. You know, if everybody, you know what I mean? Like, I, I, I yeah. actually don't want to bother him <laughs> with yet another nonprofit. You know, right. when there's a moment that I need his participation, I will reach out. Right now, I'm pretty sure he has a lot to deal with. And, um, you know, the idea of nonprofits like mine is, is to help. It's not to be helped. You know, it's we, we we are the one providing help, you know, right, so uh, and, and I'm not doing for recognition. Neither is my dad or or any of people that are involved. I just want tangible help. So when I need President Zelensky's support in order to gain something, mm -hmm. then I will right now, if I have Buddha as, as my Bernova representative, it's not going to make any difference. You know, right now I just need to appeal and reach out and continue doing the work that we're doing just to get like-minded people to be a part of our organization. Okay. I wanted to ask, well, President Zelensky is Jewish 
what has anti what is the state of it's just like weird to say what what is the state of anti-semitism versus embracing the jewish population in the ukraine what's going on with that i think that it's a misconception to be honest with you you know okay. i haven't felt any of you know i i i realize i understand historically it's interesting because a lot of people in in u.s as soon as i came back were like you listen i'm jewish but i still want to help and i'm like well, what does that mean? I still want to help. Like, what was the point? And then I realized that there was a Ukrainian diaspora, you know, historically was not very, you know, pro-Jewish and such, so, so on right. and so forth. I have no idea who those people are and where they're from. You know, okay. I know the country that wants to be democratic. I know the country that wants to be, you know, part of the world society. I know the country. So as such, it can't, you know, it can't harvest anti-Semitism. It can't harvest it cannot harvest racism. It cannot harvest all of those things that belong to the old world, in my opinion. And so I would not be defending Ukraine the way I do had I felt those things. I did not feel, feel any sort of anti-Semitism. I did not feel any sort of racism as much as it's probably everywhere else, you know? Um, so for me, I just, it's, I, I keep hearing these questions. It's just, it's a non, non-issue for me. It's non-topic at the moment. You know, I'm not, I'm not those guys. There were reports about, by the way, when I was on the train or when I was still in Ukraine and I saw, and I saw that there were reports about mistreatment of, of black uh, international students, I think from Ugandan students or something that were trying to leave and it was like, they weren't allowed on the train. That's, in, that's not true. That's, that's just not correct. They weren't allowed on the train because they were young men. And this train was full of women and children. And initially, that's all who was prioritized. Rightfully so. You got a bunch of young kids that are, that are okay to, unfortunately, I, unfortunately, yeah. but they're okay. Let's not prioritize you, not because you color your skin. It was because of the age, you know, and, the, and, and, and the, the who you represent. That was the case. That's how it felt. And that's what I witnessed. How it was reported was maybe a little bit different. So, you know, okay. for me today, Ukraine represents uh, democracy. It represents a very uh, 2022 kind of country. And I don't see any of this stuff. What do you think the prognosis is? What do you see as the future of the country of Ukraine and Ukrainian people? You know, the, the popular prognosis is that there's a, there's a counter- attacking measures that would lead to pushback of Russian forces as far back as the 91 territories of Ukraine, the, the, the sovereign, none of that Crimea annexed nonsense or mm-hmm. the Donbass region, again, nonsense. Well, because those people wanted to live in Russia, like they do not. They spent eight years being under some kind of occupational regime and Ukraine was trying to fight back its territory. So it just doesn't make sense to even say that. It's all just propaganda. You know, what I see is that once this pushback happens and Russia is forced to negotiate, then it's going to lead to some, you know, pause and it's going to lead to conversation that may or may not lead to uh, some kind of fruitful end result. Right now, what it feels like to me is this whole thing is too far gone. Right now, it feels to me that there was too much damage done by the Russian representatives, right? Because we're not supposed to say that it's all Russians, right? It's not everybody. You know, there are people that are against this, but they can't do anything because the regime, 
because the F is bad, because all these like secret services, like you go, you go to prison for 10 years just speaking against the special, you know, whatever operation that they have. So I get it. I understand it. But I feel like it's so far past the point of return. Ukrainian person today wants zero to do with anybody Russian, you know, and that's horrible because it's, it's yeah. in neighboring countries, you know. So what's going to happen now? We're going to have peace talks. And Russia is going to back up and say, okay, you know what? We tried. It didn't work. Well, let's go back to the way things were. No, it, the sanctions are, are really tightening up on Russia. The peace talks are going to lead to you go back to your place. I'm going to stay here, continue being European country that wants USA fully integrated and wants NATO fully integrated. Mm -hmm. We both, two of us, right, as adults, if this was just a us conversation, we both know it's not going to happen. We both know that somebody over there, a.k.a. Putin, is in this to, for the end result. So in my opinion, the only outcome is Ukrainian win. That's the only outcome. And then there's going to be a terrible struggle for Russian Federation as its own country, you know, because what's going to happen then is internally in Russia, the middle of Russia, the Buratia, the, all those guys that are, you know, in the front line. Right. The, the guys that the Russian army is made out of. It's not the people that live in Moscow. It's not people that live in St. Petersburg. It's people that are in the back of the Russian country, Federation that we weren't even familiar with. You know, those are the guys that border with Mongolia and China. Right. Mm -hmm. So those regions are going to be appalled. Upset is probably not the word for it, for the fact that they were the ones thrown into this whole thing. You know, it wasn't the Russian person defending the Russian democracy, you know, or whatever they call right. it. So I think that internally in Russia, there's going to be a lot of issues. I think this is a very long process. I think, you know, in my opinion, again, I'm not instigating, but Russia needs to be put all the way back to kind of like, yeah, this needs to be a complete win on Ukrainian and to be honest with you, NATO and US Well, are side. you are you disappointed at the lack of military response on the part of the US? Lack of military response? Yeah. I think so the US is the reason why Ukraine is where it's at right now. It's the okay. reason that it has the opportunity to support and defend itself. Okay. It's one hundred percent reason why Ukrainian army was built in the last eight years to withstand this onslaught because everybody yeah. saw it coming. It is the U.S. intelligence, is the U.S. support, is the U.S., you know, let's call it what it is. It's the U.S. money. It's the U.S. arm, you know, support that, that allowed for all these things. Okay. You know, again, adults, we realize that this is war and a lot of things during war are not going to be just advertised. Hey, we're about to get 100 I don't know, uh, Gaubitz, whatever those systems are, 155 millimeter, you know, bull, you know, uh, systems. It's just not going to happen that way. We're not going to read it on, on, on Instagram. from. No, Zelensky. I know, but you're, you're, your, mind, your mind goes back to World War II, where we sent right. some troops to liberate right. certain parts of Europe. And right. I know that we're, we're going about it in a much different tactical manner this time around because we don't want to try well, World War III. I love right. what we're doing. I love what okay. we're doing. Yes, yes. A Ukrainian person in Ukraine, U.S. NATO, close the sky. That's just not going to happen. You know, it's not going to happen by the international laws, by the laws that we decide that, that we live in in this country. 
You can't just mm-hmm. go in and like, here, you know, here's all our weapons, here's all our troops, number one. Number two, I believe that for you, you for the American person, this, this war, the way U.S. government is supporting it is the best way to support it. You know, you're supporting it with weapons and with, with pieces of metal. You're not throwing your personnel. You're not, you're not spending bodies. your yeah. body. You know, uh, so so what what's the worst that could, you know, not the worst that could happen. I'm like, that's the way to support it. And again, I, I'm here to, you know, not defend anybody. But I, I, you know, I just have to say it in the way that it's supposed to be said that that United United States is the number one support of Ukraine in every way, shape or form. So, you know, I have no problem with with that. If not for that support, would you know, Ukraine would have been a, in a much worse place. Okay, that makes sense. What do you think you came into this life as Maxim Shmerkovsky to learn? And what do you think you came here to teach? But I mean, it's a loaded question. <laughs> it's a great question. Never lost for words, but this is, it's a great question. I, do, <laughs> I, I, think, I think that, you know, one of the phrases that I kind of learned is that, you know, you, you, God laughs the second when you try to make plans. Right. Mm-hmm. So like, you know, the last couple of years for me and my family, but I'm sure for, for everybody and a lot of people worldwide uh, showed that it isn't about what you plan. It's about how you react to things that come at you every day. So that's my lesson now. You know, first, I, I don't know at the end of my life, what will my both lessons and things that I've been able to educate will be. But right this second, I'm here to bring shoot, I'm now all of a sudden those guys, you know, who, who carry this this banner and right. regardless of where I am, you know, I, everybody comes up and says, hey, you know, Ukraine, hey, you know, I'm with you and on so on and so forth. And so I can probably like stick my head in the ground and keep it moving. But I think today that's my, that's my everyday, that's my mission, right? To continue being the best version of a husband, father, brother, son that I can be, as well as try to lead by example, I guess. I mean, that's the only way that I know how to do things. You know, 10 years from now, if, if somebody talks to me about nonprofits, I'll be telling them how I did it. You know, if you're asking me about how to dance, I'm going to tell you how I've gotten here. You know, if you're asking me about television life, I can only bring examples that I've gone through, you know. So I'm here to teach what are my experiences and to learn from life, I guess, you know, and whatever it throws at me. And what is your future with Dancing with the Stars? <laughs> well, is my wife on it? My brother's on it. My sister-in-law is on it. You know, I uh-huh. feel like, you know, I'm going I'm to wait until one of our kids is joining it in like 20 years from now. <laughs> um, Listen, I, I, I would, you know, I never thought that my body would let me be considering this kind of action. Uh, but, you know, I'm in great shape. I'm in perfect health. And, you know, I try to stay that way for whatever comes at me. If Dancing with the Stars comes and says, we want you as a pro, and let's go back to, uh, you know, shake that tail feather one more time. I'm in. Okay. If they don't. I'm, I'm definitely shaking it in other ways and on other platforms. So, you know, my dance, it hasn't been, my, I, I have not danced my last dance yet. Let's just put it that way. Have okay. Whether it's maybe on Dancing with the Stars or somewhere else, you know, okay. I have no idea. Again, what is, 
the point of making plants, right? What's the point <laughs> of making plants? Well, I was my last question was going to be, what do you see for the future for for you, Peta, and Shy? But I, I could see making plans is uh, <laughs> probably not. A, it's probably more of a go with the flow kind of a thing, right? I'm assuming. Yeah. No, when you throw in shy into the mix, into the question, you know, and I'm, I'm here to be the absolute best father, husband that I can be, you know, and, and he's the focal point of our focus and the absolute center of our life. And regardless of where I am and what I do, you know, I'm all about that kid and, and, and my life was with Peter. I'm hoping for more kids. She's mm-hmm. hoping for more kids. You know, we, uh, infamously you know had a IVF that didn't work you know four miscarriages and you know I'm just here to support her and everything that she's going through and that she's doing and hopefully in our future is a few years without any of this association you know and 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 just bright entertaining couple of years I don't know but he's about to go to school so that's the only thing that we're focusing right now yeah Um, Okay, so first of all, Max, thank you so much because this was very informative, inspirational, and just absolutely lovely, and it was wonderful to meet you. Thank you, Allison. It was great. Thank you so much for doing this, and and I appreciate it. Of course. Great questions. Thank you. All right, have a good one. This interview with Max was by far, like, in my top 10 interviews that I've ever done. And that's saying a lot because I've done hundreds of interviews. <laughs> so it, it's definitely in the top 10, if not the top five. I, I found Max's life to just be absolutely fascinating, poignant. It, it, it's really interesting to hear what somebody like him has gone through and then what he has achieved. And again, I think everything happens for a reason. I think perhaps he was put into the spotlight so that he could be in a position to rise to the occasion to help the Ukrainian people during this very difficult time right now and so God always has a plan it's so interesting you know he he was talking about during the interview how he he really doesn't particularly care for for fame he really considers himself a professional dancer more than a celebrity so to speak but I, again I think God has a plan and I think <laughs> he was put into the spotlight for a reason and I and you know what let this be the reason I think that he's doing a phenomenal job helping the Ukraine people and uh, bravo to him and it was an honor to have him on the podcast and to sit down and speak with him uh, like I had the chance to do so with that being said there's some other goodies coming up in the next couple of weeks some other really amazing meaningful interviews with some extraordinary people so I will catch you on the next go-around peace